Hey guys, welcome to the View from the Front podcast. You know what? You probably should insert some really hip, really cool music here because we don't have any really hip, really cool music on this podcast. But what we do have is news you're not going to find anywhere else easily. For those who don't know, my name is Stan R. Mitchell and I'm a prior Marine and journalist. And as a guy who's been deployed overseas and who was a big time history buff even before that, I care a lot about our military, where they're at where they might be going, what conflicts might be about to occur. Because these things matter. So if you're a military member, a spouse of a military member, or a parent or grandparent of a military member, this is probably a great show for you to subscribe to. I'll keep you updated on foreign policy issues, but I won't do it like you'll find everywhere else. First of all, the media almost never covers the military or looming hotspots. But if and when they do... They overhype everything, and they scare you, and they use lots of B-real video with explosions and flashing graphics. Their biggest desire is eyeballs and ad dollars. I promise you, and you can check the past year of archived editions, I do not overhype, exaggerate, or do any of that. If anything, I almost downplay. It's a steady and calm voice that you'll find here. But on the flip side... Foreign policy journals that do cover what we do also fall way short in my opinion. Their articles are far too long, they're far too dense, and they're crammed with big words, technical mumbo-jumbo, and silly acronyms that only insiders truly know. So I couldn't find a show that met my needs, so I decided to create one. Once a week, I'll discuss military matters while also adding in a little motivation, wisdom, and history. Besides covering this news and also trying to build you up and encourage you with plenty of motivation at the end of each episode, I also work as hard as I can to unite this country. Without question, I feel like our wide division and animosity toward those with whom we disagree is the greatest threat our country faces. So, once a week, I do my best to bridge this great divide while also reminding each of us that most of us are being played by divisive politicians and broadcast hosts who are ripping apart this great country just so they can reach a higher office or gain more followers and ad dollars. Most Americans are good, and we need to remember this, always. While we face great challenges as a country, America has stood together for more than 240 years, and it's only by pulling our country closer together that we can pass on a better future for our kids. We need to hold and cherish the beliefs that got us here today. Beliefs such as patience, kindness, and a strong belief that our best days lie before us. These are the beliefs that got us to this point, and they're also the kind of optimistic beliefs that will get us to a brighter future. And with that out of the way, let's get started. Oh, and if you want to, insert some really hip, really cool music in your head, because apparently that's the only way you can have a successful podcast these days. This is the November 24th edition of The View from the Front, and we're really glad to have you here. we got a lot of stuff we're going to cover, and then of course we'll end with, as always, the Motivation and Wisdom section. So, welcome if you're a new listener. Appreciate having you here. Obviously, I'm putting this out a day late, and that's partly for couple of reasons. One, yesterday was Thanksgiving. I had originally planned to put it out on Wednesday, but uh, I had hinted a week or so ago, I think it was last edition, that there had been some um, news in my family that I was pretty vague about at the time. But since that time, um, we've learned a little bit more about it, and 
my mom has decided to share it and so i'm going to share it because if you are the praying kind we would definitely welcome any prayers you got so i will attempt to simply read this message but this is about the fourth attempt trying so we'll just see how it goes so here's the message she did share on facebook just wanted to drop a few lines about some news about me kathy that some of you may have known but i've not shared with anyone Last week, I was diagnosed with liver cancer, and I found out today that it is inoperable. Marvin and I, that's her husband, and who's also my dad, obviously. Marvin and I know that God is in control, and we are putting our trust in Him. And we are also claiming the promise that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. Please keep us in your thoughts and prayers as we process the shock of this news. Okay, so that's the message. I think at that time I managed to get it said in a somewhat voice that could be heard. So obviously the Mitchell household the past couple of weeks, we've been dealing with some things. And um, as we've learned more about it, we are obviously saddened by the news and I don't want to get too much into that. But if you are the praying kind, we absolutely appreciate your prayers as we uh, move through this. And um, it's, uh, you've probably noticed I've not been on social media as much lately and um, just, just dealing with all this. So, uh, but it's inter interesting. I shared with some friends that, uh, you know, as I kind of process and wade through this, that you realize that even in great adversity and sadness, that there's beauty. And I've received texts and outpourings of love from people I hadn't talked to in months and months. And I've, uh, you know, strengthened my faith and explored my heart far deeper the past couple of weeks than I have in years. So it's, uh, when you get in heavy stuff like this, you, uh, kind of see things with like a clarity that you can only see when there's as I said to a friend that when there's like just terrifying madness happening around you and it's like you're in the middle of this car wreck like you, we've all done this either in a near wreck or been in a car wreck and you realize you have like these superpowers and the ability to just see and do things in almost like microseconds like time literally slows down and you're you're, you're operating in like micro microseconds and when that happens um in a, in a car accident or near car accident, you sometimes do things that are just unbelievable, obviously. And then sometimes we all have guardian angels that do things. But when you get hit with news like this, it, uh, it really, it puts life in perspective, obviously. And all of the things that like a week or two before mattered, they don't matter anymore. The distractions on your phone, the busyness of life, your favorite football team's record. I mean, the Vols got stomped. And it was hard. And all season long, I've cared about the Vols. And it's just like, man, like, why do I even, I don't even, who cares about football right now? Like, why does football even matter? Until so you realize that some of that stuff is just so utterly meaningless. And we all know this. We just forget it. And then sometimes in life, we kind of get hit with something. And um, it kind of puts things in perspective. So if, uh, if you're kind of in a busy part of your life right now, and, you know, just, um, you know, just kind of going with the flow, like, do what you know. Nothing I've said is like some deep thought or something. Like, do what you're supposed to do. Like, reach out to someone you haven't reached out to in a month or two just because you know you should. And like, put your phone down. Quit looking at TikTok. Quit doing whatever you're doing. It's like so mundane and just completely irrelevant. And I'm as guilty as anyone on all of these things. But I'm just saying, we all know that, uh, most of that stuff, like, man, it just does not matter. And yet we just do it. Keep up with the football stats. We do, I mean, we we keep up with the dumbest 
most irrelevant things that 10 years from now, no one's even going to care or know about. But anyway, if you haven't checked on someone lately, go do that. And um, if you're praying kind, please keep praying for my beautiful mother. And so uh, glad I got most of that out as well as I could. And I'm not going to record it again. So let's keep moving. Um, on Thanksgiving, I did go, uh, thanks to my beautiful wife who helped push me. We went to run a 5K, which I'm glad she helped push me to do. I didn't really want to do, and uh, we definitely haven't had a lot of time for training. But, you know, we've been doing a lot of family stuff as we've all tried to, you know, close in and, and support each other. And um, so it was good to, for three miles, three painful miles since I hadn't trained a lot, to uh, not think about that stuff. And so just a reminder that a lot, I mean, again, this is like basics and common sense, but um, man, sometimes exercise, like even when you're going through something tough, you got, you gotta, you gotta go do it. it it's, it's like necessary. So um, I wanted to say one other thing or two about Thanksgiving. And besides being thankful for friends and family, um, I want to thank all those who are serving. I think the number's like a little bit above a million right now whether it's uh, folks who are overseas or on ship. There are a lot of people out there serving, many of them in harm's way. Um, so thank you to all of those who've been over, who are overseas right now. I've been that person, and my goodness, can places like Okinawa or you know, being on a ship in the Mediterranean in the middle of winter, those can be very lonely places. So I know there are young people out there not all of them are young, but, you know, I did it as a young person. You're 18, 19, you're away from home for the first time. It's heavy during the holidays. So thank you, every single one of y'all who are out there, even those who are maybe at home, but they've raised their right hand, and you may be in the National Guard, but you know that any time our country may need you. So thank all of you guys serving right now. Thank all of those people who have served in the past, and um, we all know that we all went through a fair amount of stuff. We uh, sacrificed time. Many of us, we we picked up emotional scars. We picked up, in many cases, physical scars. We served our country, and we're all proud that we have done that. We would do that again. And um, so thank you. If you are one of those people who have served our country, it is because of you that we have this country. And I, I really appreciate that. So, you know, I think sometimes in America we... We take um, democracy for granted, and we've gotten a little lazy. I think everybody would admit that. So it's made me happy that of late the voter turnouts have been going up the last few years. And, you know, I don't care which side you're voting for. I want people to stay informed, stay engaged. That's partly why I'm doing this show. One final thought about serving, fighting, putting yourself in harm's way is there are, you know, people resisting in Ukraine in Iran right now, and other places that barely make the news fighting for their freedom. And, you know, not everyone wins, and not everyone comes out of that in good health. So as you enjoy the, you know, post-Thanksgiving days, and as we move toward Christmas, and you have peace, and you have neighbors you can wave to, and you don't have roadblocks, of you know, a mile away, you're not worried about another neighborhood you know, attacking your neighborhood in some civil war. All these things that we so take for granted. Like, don't take them for granted this year. Even the heat. You know, we'll get into Ukraine and some of the attacks on their power system. But, man, like, we take everything for granted in America. 
And I always say, if you are in America, if you were born here, there's about 300 million plus of us, you were born with a lottery ticket. There are 8 billion people in the world. And I know sometimes people on the left will say, oh, Finland or, you know, Denmark or Sweden, not, they, they pay for college or they do this or that. Or We can argue about this country or that country, but if you were fortunate enough to be born in this country, you're pretty daggone lucky. And so uh, I hope you're proud to be an American. And, um, you know, I hope you don't take for granted what we have because it can all go away. We all know this. Every now and then I bring it up, but you just have to study Roman history or any other history. But, you know, the the biggest threat we face, I still believe, is some type of disunity or civil war. That's basically what brought down the Roman Empire. And so when societies and civilizations kind of get fat and lazy, when you're the Roman Empire and you don't want to fight for your country anymore so you start bringing in mercenaries and barbarians to fight for your country because no one wants to when you have people who get super power hungry and decide they want to retain power or take power as happened in, and i'm actually talking about rome right now happened numerous times and so there were these constant fights for power that were completely um, disastrous for the country and while they would be dealing with these internal bouts of turmoil they would lose their eye or take their eye off and lose some of their resources coming in from their outer provinces which would then lead to those places um obviously uprising and no longer want to be a part of the roman realm so you know in america we don't necessarily have that but we've seen what this division does we felt the internal friction even in the past few years and it hasn't come to great bloodshed yet. There's been some, certainly, in, in various places. But we, we honestly, I mean, you feel it at Thanksgiving sometimes, right? You've got someone on the far left or far right, and they can just run the whole thing. We have seen what loud, angry voices can do. And so I hope that this podcast helps remind people that most people are good. And most people, even... Even the passionate, they would help you. And so we can't let politics, we can't think that this election or that election, everything's on the line. We all have a voice. We all have the opportunity to make the right decisions, to get informed. And so I'm just constantly trying to do my best to be the opposite of what every other podcast seems to be out there, of what every other news show. Everyone just needs to relax a little bit, love your neighbor, do all the things that we all know from the good book, whether it's the Bible, which is what I'm referring to. But I've also read parts of the Quran. I've also read parts of Hinduism, Buddhism. You can study any religion. We know the good things to do, the love your neighbor, the treat others well, to not slander, to not lie, to not attack. Like We know these things. So why we continue to follow people or look up to people who are angry and, and spitting and acting like total mad men or mad women. I have no idea, but we need to get off of this drug of attention and social media, and we need to get back to what, you know, makes any society work. So, okay, I've said way too much about all of that, but appreciate you letting me ramble a bit, and we will now get to the news. So I'm going to begin the news portion by talking about the Middle East and a couple of different places there, um, just some pretty heavy stuff going on there and the you know the Middle East reminds us that the instability of the Middle East and how many players it affects 
it's just it doesn't matter when you study the history going back decades and decades maybe even centuries but the instability and the literally generations old grievances and hatred between various groups is it's always you know just real close to coming to the surface and boiling over and so we've talked about for a couple of months now the protests in Iran it's been going on for about two months it originally began with you know the women protesting having to wear the hijabs or the head coverings and started mostly peaceful and things have kind of been moving toward more violent type unrest and initially the Iranian government was pretty um, light-handed in how they dealt with a protest but as time has gone on and as often happens with protest movements things have gotten a little uglier and so since the last episode things got a lot uglier I have to set this section up a bit by reminding people that in Iran is an ethnic group called the Kurds many of us have heard that term the Kurds are also in uh, the northern part of Iraq they're in Syria they're also in Turkey so this ethnic group called the Kurds are often hated despised and attacked by each of those governments but also during you know at least the past 10 years or so the Kurds have been helping the US they've almost been like an ally as America and the West has fought ISIS as you recall ISIS had swept across thousands of miles of Syria and Iraq and routed government forces there the US used Kurd fighters uh, Kurdish fighters I guess I should say to essentially work as ground troops with the assistance of US special forces and they have used American air power mostly although some European air power and ISIS was pushed back and driven and and almost squashed almost pretty much kind of was and they've kind of started coming back but I just wanted to give that quick overview so the Kurds again they're in Iran they're in Iraq they're in Syria and they're in Turkey and in Iran the protest movement that began two months ago was actually started by a Kurdish woman who refused to wear the hijab she was taken into custody and she died in police custody that's what started this protest movement and so a lot of the um, loudest and most angry type voices or largest amount of anger has been in the Kurdish area and since the last episode as the government has tried to deal with that anger the Kurds have faced much more violent um, I don't know how to say it but I guess a crackdown by the Iranian security forces and they have started using live ammunition they're not just firing the uh, rubber bullets anymore they're not just using tear gas so they're firing live ammunition they're raiding homes to search for certain suspects they're um, you know they're doing things they're seriously cracking down they've cut off power in some of the areas and as they there were a couple of towns that they went into 
and they used um, armored vehicles, they used helicopters, and it almost sort of turned into fighting, but lots of fight, lots of uh, videos of firing, and you can see this if you do any kind of searching online. I'm going to share a um, video or two in the source notes, which I'll discuss in a second. But so the Kurds in these towns, they made, uh, you know, they put up roadblocks, they barricaded certain areas, certain arteries of the um, roads going through, and that obviously made the Iranians even more mad, and so they got even more violent, and they sent in their special troops, the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard. So they brought in even more elite troops, and they cut the electricity. They got more violent, and so it's, as a reminder, it's almost impossible to get news out. Almost all the news that's come out is from protesters who have somehow managed to get video uploaded. It's very hard to do that because Iranians have cut the internet. It's very hard to even really know what's going on. So as you search for news on this stuff, the news is days and days behind when it happened. And as I've tried to follow this story as best I could, you know, you'll see just unbelievable video and it will it will sometimes take a day or two before it can be in any way verified or reported by western news outlets that i consider reputable so there was this fighting going on i was trying to keep up with it as best i could and as that got uglier the iranians became even more aggressive and they be they um, launched um, ballistic missiles into iraq again the Kurds are in Iraq, and they are in Iran. Iraq is a country that is not necessarily the most stable or strong country. And so, in the northern part of Iraq, where the Kurds are, the Iranians believed that the Kurds were using the safety of the Iraqi northern part as kind of a staging area. And so, they launched some ballistic missiles into Iraq to hit Kurdish uh, headquarters and a few other targets. I've got video of that. You can see the explosions. All of this has been verified since then. Iraq was not happy about Iran sending in, I mean, firing ballistic missiles into its own country, obviously. And so they have chastised the Iranians for firing those missiles in there. And they've also tried to talk to the Kurds and demanded that they control the arming of dissident Kurdish people in Iran. Iran claims that Kurds in Iraq have been sending weapons to Kurds in Iran. There's probably some truth to that, so Iraq's going to try to secure its border better. But all of this has really almost destabilized the region. So I wanted to share all of that. Who knows how all of this is going to work out. But while all of that was going on, again, the Kurds made the news because there was a bombing in Turkey, and in, in that bombing, the... Turkish leader Erdogan was angry at the Kurds, and so he's launched attacks against them in the Syrian area, where the Kurds are. And what's significant about that is that there are American troops in that area, about 100 or so. You're not going to see an exact number on that for lots of operational security reasons. But the Turks launched, and Turkey is a NATO ally and an ally of the U.S., they launched air raids on Kurdish bases because they were angry about this bombing that happened in one of their cities. And so they launched air raids, and the problem is is that some of those air raids nearly hit U.S. troops. 
Obviously, these airstrikes are hugely concerning to American officials, and I'm going to get into that in a statement that they made and what the consequences could be in just a second. But before we leave the revolution in Iran, I wanted to say just a couple more things about that. Uh, again, in the source notes, you can see a video of that ballistic missile, at least one of them, that hit a target. Those ballistic missiles have been fired over a period of days. Again, it's very difficult to know how many people died from it. Some outlets say 30 to 40, perhaps more. Um, to me, that seems a little low, but there also is the chance that when they targeted these buildings, it appears to be at night. I still think Iran, in some ways, is kind of using a light hand because it's almost like in one of the building strikes, they said only one, of, one person died. And the videos obviously at night, and so to me it seems odd that if you're if you were trying to break this Kurdish resistant movement, that you would strike a building at night and only kill one person. So it's almost like they waited for the building to be empty when they hit it as kind of a warning of what they could do. To me, it seems like, and and thankfully so at least, they are perhaps using a measured response. Although they did fire those missiles into Iraq, but I wanted to say just another thing or two about this Iranian crackdown, which I've got a video on the source notes where you can watch their security forces, you know, grab a protester, they throw him in the trunk of the car, they're hitting him with a rifle, and this is all on video, you can watch it, um, just complete, you know, brutality, they're just barbarians almost, and I wanted to say, I wanted to share one other video, because it's important we understand what's happening in Iran. i and given that I've talked about the the head headwear, the hijabs that the women are forced to wear, that's what started the protest movement. But the reason that it's been so hard for the Iranian government to put down, and you've seen even with some of the soccer players that have spoken out that are from Iran, the reason it's more than just about women's rights. There was a video that was shared that went viral that explains it. It's a very short video. It's very well put out. Is that the Iranian people, or it's so much more than just the headwear, they're sick of forced confessions, they're sick of not having due process, like all the things that we take for granted in America, um, you know, the right to remain silent, the right to an attorney, the right to a fair trial, they don't have any of that, they're sick of not having fair trials, they're sick of illegal killings by police and the military, they're sick of child marriage, you know, young ladies being forced to marry people, they're sick of government corruption. They're sick of how Iran has been funding terrorism. And mainly they're fighting what is a theocracy. And for a reminder of what a theocracy is, that's a form of government in which whatever religion it is, that's recognized as a supreme ruling authority. And then they use the government and their their belief in how they see God to manage the government's daily affairs. And obviously there are more than one type of religion in Iran. So... If you imagine in America that we had, you know, one type of religion ruling everything, anyone who's not that faith is probably not going to be real happy about it. And probably some of those who are of that faith are not going to be happy about as more devout and strict um, rulers of that faith start to enforce and, you know, put in place laws that you may not agree with. And then you have radical believers of that faith you know, walking around with sticks and whipping people and doing all the things that they believe they can do because of that faith, eventually that's going to get a little old. And so this has been happening for decades, and it's it's gotten more than old. And so that is why the Iranian people 
are protesting, and that's why they're fighting. It's more than just the headdress. There's a lot more at stake. Now, if you want to see the areas where they launched those ballistic missiles, I've got a map of that in the source notes, and you can go to the source notes. You can see the names of those towns. You can see how far away into Iraq they actually are. But again, this is part of Iraq that the Iraqi government doesn't have a lot of control over. This goes all the way back to Saddam Hussein in the 90s. The Kurdish people have always been fairly well armed. And they've been difficult to control. So there's always been tentative peace and tentative friction between the Kurds and whoever rules Iraq. And the same thing with the Kurds in Syria and the same thing with the Kurds in Iran and in Turkey. So... If you recall, Saddam Hussein actually gassed the Kurds, and we, I think it was uh, the first president, George Bush, first Bush, uh, had to stop them from flying helicopters up there and using, you know, fighter jets to drop gas on the Kurds. So they've been attacked for a long time. Um, so you could see the areas that were targeted in the source notes if you want to go look there and get a better idea of the terrain and all. So I've got that in the source notes. One other thing I wanted to say is I have in the source notes uh, Malcolm Nance, who's obviously a military analyst that a lot of you have seen on TV and uh, has a huge following on social media. He shared a video of Iran firing live rounds at protesters. And he, the source he quoted believes up to about 450 have been killed. Again, no one really knows how many have been killed. Um, it's impossible to get exact numbers out. And I'm thinking the 450s over the past couple of months, but at least 40 or so have been killed in the past few days. But you can watch in this video the live rounds being fired at unarmed people, and you get a feeling of what it feels like to see unarmed people basically get mowed down and run for their lives. And he said something that I thought was just... I couldn't say it any better than this, but he, he shows the video, and he says, this is how revolutions begin. So... It's one thing to have several hundred people out there protesting and then have cops come in with batons and, you know, smack some people around, beat them down, run them off. But when you start firing rounds at people and women and old men are hit, young kids, 15, 16 year old, that really is how revolutions begin. It's how the American Revolution began, in case you have forgotten, you know, there was the Boston Massacre and that just absolutely enraged Americans across the country and so that this really is how revolutions begin and so we'll keep our eye on this in the coming weeks and this is going to be one of those things where either the Iranians are going to skillfully crack down on this without overreacting as the British overreacted in America sent in too many troops infuriated the American colonists they're either going to skillfully do that or the Iranian people are going to more violently begin resisting. And they're going to stop protesting and they're going to start arming themselves. So that's what's going to happen from 10,000 feet. And we'll just have to see how this plays out. So let's move back from where we started on this about the Iranian airstrikes on Kurdish forces in Syria. Now, the strikes actually landed very... They were against some military bases where American special operations troops were actually stationed or at times they, I guess, harbor there. And so one of the strikes hit within 130 meters of U.S. personnel, according to a spokesperson for Central Command, which oversees 
our military efforts in the Middle East. And so what's not said in that story is I cannot imagine the tension that probably happened when that strike occurred. Because whether Turkey is a NATO ally or not, when you are landing bombs especially, but even mortars or any kind of artillery within 130 meters of U.S. personnel, you can guarantee they're on the horn with headquarters. And you can also pretty much guarantee that there are were American fighter jets scrambled. And I dare say that there were some Turkish aircraft told to either vacate the area or just plan on, you know, flying down to the ground by parachute because American forces are not going to allow Americans to be killed by any force, whether it's the Turkish jets flying overhead. Now, maybe they didn't think any Americans were in that base at the time. Maybe they weren't thinking ahead. I'm not exactly sure on that part. But we do know that when the Wagner Group attacked this same American force a few years ago, maybe they didn't realize the Americans were there. They were warned by radio. I think, I don't even remember how many hundred attacked a very small force of U.S. troops. And they got on the horn, and before it was all said and done, I believe it was like 200 plus Wagner troops were just absolutely just massacred from aerial strikes. And suddenly at that point, the artillery rounds coming in board toward the Americans, that ended. And they absolutely punished those Russian forces. And so, NATO ally or not, Turkey has to know that though in its own mind, Turkey thinks it's some kind of powerful force, they know better than to mess with the U.S. So I'm sure that helped in some of those strikes, but there's still just a lot of tension. And the problem is that the Kurdish forces in the area are controlling some prison camps from that have ISIS fighters. And some of these have thousands of ISIS fighters. There's like 3,000 that broke out from one prison in January. Those took weeks to recapture. There's also like... Uh, refugee camps with the wives and kids of ISIS fighters who were killed. One of them has 60,000 refugees. And the Syrian uh, Kurds have, they have said, look, if Turkey keeps fighting us, if they do a ground campaign, which is a possibility, which the Turks have done before, we will have to take fighters who are currently guarding these camps, which are already pretty perilously guarded, to help defend against a ground invasion. And if that happens, then of course, ISIS will be able to better constitute itself if thousands of these fighters are released. So the U.S. is trying to use diplomatic um, negotiations and means to basically tell the Turks, stop bombing, also stop um, planning a ground attack, which Erdogan has threatened a couple of times. So... All of this is up in the air. I will say there was a column by Washington Post columnist David Ignatius. And I'll just quote one paragraph. He said, uh, General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, spoke on Wednesday with his Turkish counterpart and warned the Turks against attacking restricted zones around U.S. troops. But a Pentagon official said that there was, quote, no sign that the Turks are ready to de-escalate. And then Ignatius writes, as the Turkish military assault in northern Syria begins to destabilize 
the U.S.-led coalition's fragile control over the murderous remnants of the Islamic State, a reasonable person begins to wonder, what kind of ally is this? And he's referring to the Turks, obviously. So, we'll keep an eye on that. That is uh, a pretty big story, because if, if this, as he said, fragile coalition of the Kurds begins to unravel as the Turks perhaps act less and less responsible. We have at least 100 plus American troops in the area and we will defend them. I can guarantee you that. And there will probably also be pressure on the Biden administration to withdraw these troops. I'm sure the Turks are asking that the Americans be removed so that they can more safely fight the Kurds. And they do have a little bit of leverage because it's the Turkish Navy that's preventing the Russian Navy from moving into the Black Sea. They control a very narrow choke point there. The Turks have done a lot to help the Ukrainians as they have dealt with this Russian invasion. So I think the bigger fear as well, at least this is me speaking from my opinion, is the U.S. has sold out the Kurds so many times in the past is that yet again they may see the need for the Turks to continue to counter the Russians that the U.S. might yet again sell out the Kurds. So that's a bit of a concern of mine for sure. So we'll see how all of this plays out. I will most definitely keep you posted as I learn more or as more occurs. Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to, please sign up for email notifications. It's free unless you choose to subscribe and support what I'm doing. But you can sign up for free at my website, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. From there, you can subscribe to the show by email, and that'll make sure you never miss any future episodes. Again, that's free. I will also say that people are, are always asking me on social media how to best support my dreams, including getting out future books in some series that they love sooner than what I'm currently doing. Believe me, the best way to support me or this show is by signing up for a paid subscription at my Substack page. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com or you can sign up to support the show from Patreon. Again, that's Patreon. I had had that request for some from some listeners as well. Either of those options, if you're wanting to pay, are $5 per month and you can cancel those at any time. The paid subscriptions provide a recurring monthly revenue and that $5 a month is the fastest way that I'll be able to return to becoming a full-time author again, which means I'll have more time to write fiction, it'll have I'll have more time to cover the news even more in depth, and I'll be able to work even harder to try to unite the country and motivate others. And these are all things that I feel drawn to do, like strongly drawn to do. So, of course, you can also tell people about the podcast, and there's even the option to give a gift subscription to a friend You guys can also clearly tell people about my books, which many of you are already doing, and I appreciate each and every one of you doing that. But I do want to be very clear here. You don't have to do any of these things. I truly feel called to do this, and I've already had tremendous support from people who've signed up to chip in a few bucks each month. You guys know who you are. I really do appreciate you. So trust me, you can sign up, come and go as you like. If you want to subscribe for a couple of three months, that's great. You can do that. As long as I'm making enough to cover the time I put into doing this show, then I'm not going anywhere. 
I love highlighting the sacrifices of our military. I love trying to unify the country. I love throwing cold water on these over-the-top exaggerations by extremist politicians and broadcasters. And honestly, I love knowing that I'm helping motivate and reach out to people who just need a little extra encouragement each week. So thanks so much for your support. And with all of that out of the way, let's get back to the show. All right, let's move to Ukraine. I want to talk for a moment about the latest in Ukraine. There has been no major advances or retreats or major ground fighting successes on either side. Things are mostly stabilized. And I think that's partly because it's not quite cold enough for the... It's still muddy and the ground hasn't hardened and frozen yet. So the tanks are having issues advancing except down expected lines of advances, either roads or highways. So those are well guarded. So you can't really break through various areas, which will happen probably in winter. So what has happened, though, is that the Russians have continued to fire just massive amounts of I guess planned barrages of missiles and they're coming in waves that are pretty well designed in that with any anti-aircraft system whether it's missiles that fire into the air whether it's anti-aircraft guns you know you can only hit so many targets you can only fire so many missiles and so the Russians are firing barrages of like 80 to 100 missiles at a time launched from planes, ground, etc. And these are overwhelming the Ukrainian defenders. My apologies if you heard a dog barking in the background. That's my dog, Ozzy. And he apparently wanted to be on the podcast. So I'll let him. There we go. So back to the barrages of missiles. The Russians have been doing this for some time. And in previous months and in previous strikes... The Ukrainians have pretty quickly been able to repair the the electricity. There have been prominent Ukrainian journalists and generals who've almost laughed at the attack. And they would say, you guys spent millions to knock out the power, and it's back up within like three or four hours. And you could have fired those weapons at our soldiers, but instead you hit targets that don't even have people at them, and you're pretty much wasting your time. Now, some of that was their sincere thoughts. I think some of that was bravado. But what has happened in the past week or so is that the power is not getting put back on within four hours. The Ukrainians are running out of electrical substations. They're running out of um, some of the... And I'm no electrician. I'm no genius when it comes to this stuff. But they're running out of the parts that they need to quickly bring the utility utilities back up and as i've read about why this is challenging it's partly because they're mostly on what was at one time kind of a soviet era power grid so it's different than some of the power stuff that we're using in the west so some of those uh, electrical substations and the parts they aren't easy to find in the west one two So they're trying to get them from Poland and a few other countries that kind of had the older Soviet uh, system, electrical um, infrastructure in place. But those countries don't have a lot of these parts because typically these things last a long time and no one really expected them to be bombed. 
and no country has these. Some of these things take six months to nine months to make. I was kind of got into the weeds on researching this stuff. And so the Ukrainians have ordered them from everywhere, South Korea, etc. They put in orders. But the reality is, is that these just barbaric attacks by the Russians, it's no longer a joke. Probably wasn't a joke before, but it's definitely starting to have an effect. And in one of the recent attacks, it took many hours, almost, uh, I want to find the fact here. At one point, there was over 25% of the country without power. 10 million people out of a country that used to have 40 million were without power. Some of the places, they're having problems even getting it back up. It's still without power. So that's leading to more refugees having to go further inland to parts of Ukraine that are already struggling with, um, you know, not enough city services. And so that's also leading to more people deciding to leave Ukraine. No one wants to live in Ukraine through a winter of no power. The Ukrainians, with the help of the Americans in the West, are trying to plan for warming stations powered by generators, etc. Because, as I said, this is all starting to catch up and to pile up. And so it's a kind of a big deal. So millions could potentially flee the country. They already have had millions. At one point, 7.8 million Ukrainians had fled. Some of those came back, but there was also almost 6 million that were internally displaced who moved further toward like Kiev. So a lot of these apartments and homes already have Ukrainians who are distant cousins, family members, friends. So a lot of these places already have extra members in their house. And of course, many of these people don't have jobs. And so all of this is just kind of leading to a larger strain. Already the Ukrainian economy was devastated by the war. When you don't have power, you can't do things. We all know this is pretty obvious. And even things such as using debit cards, credit cards, etc. If you don't have power, you can't... Money is... It's more di difficult for money to change hands. So all of this is starting to add up a bit. And so Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, the West and the U.S., they're trying to figure out strategies. But it's it's challenging. And so we want to keep them in our thoughts as they figure out how best to deal with this. Their air defenses are getting better. The U.S. has sent more stuff. The West has sent more stuff. And all in the hopes of trying to stop the Russians from hitting these valuable infrastructure targets, including water. They've been attacking water infrastructure. And, you know, some of these places don't have reliable water now. So, you know, you can imagine if you don't have water or electricity or you're not too sure if you're going to have either, it's kind of a big deal. So... That's the latest of what's happening in Ukraine. While we're talking about Ukraine, I wanted to say just a, a little bit more. Because I continue to get frustrated at those who are impatient and opposed to our aid to Ukraine. And since the Russian invasion began, we've approved $65.9 billion in assistance. And that does sound like a ton of money. And it is a decent amount of money, but it's only, and I mean only, a minimal 0.3% of the U.S. gross domestic product. Again, 0.3%. 0.3%. That's, that's so minor 
Again, we're talking 66 billion, 0.3%. The Ukrainians have lost almost 100,000 soldiers. Their country has been devastated. We have spent 66 billion, 0.3%. So when you hear those attacking it as some huge waste, and we need to audit this money, we're talking about 0.3%. Let's put that in perspective. How much did we spend in Afghanistan? I happen to have the number, but take a guess in your head. I'll give you the answer now. Did you say 100 billion? 200 billion? 500? A trillion? The answer is $2 trillion in Afghanistan over a 20-year period. $2 trillion. And that was caused by mission creep. We had to fight Afghanistan. That's where Osama bin Laden was after the attacks of 9-11. The religious leaders, the Taliban, would not give up Osama bin Laden. We started a bombing campaign. We sent special forces in and Marines and some infantry, but we mostly used the Northern Alliance. We toppled the Taliban, and then we allowed mission creep from President George Bush, who I believe his heart was in the right place. But he had this idea that we could create a democracy in Afghanistan, in one of the poorest, most illiterate countries in the world, in a country where is a way too big, and there were way too many, the entire tribal system. I mean, we literally tried Mission Impossible. And for 20 years, in a country that was very divided, with different types of people, that had rarely been held together, rarely, in a country that had defeated many empires before us, the Russians, the British. We tried the impossible. And we spent $2 trillion. And in that time, almost every president wanted to leave. Certainly President Obama wanted to. It's what he campaigned on. Certainly President Trump wanted to. President Biden wanted to. We eventually did. We spent $2 trillion in Afghanistan over 20 years. In Ukraine, again, we have spent $66 billion. I want to mention one other thing. How much, did we use, how much have we spent in the U.S.-led war in Iraq since 2003? As a, as a reminder, this was a war of choice. The Iraqis hadn't attacked us. Saddam Hussein hadn't attacked us. We, this was a war of choice that we did out of fear. We were worried that he might somehow use a weapon of mass destruction against the U.S. And so the U.S., which is like some well-off neighbor or, you know, well-off home in the suburbs that was very safe, that had already reconstituted and organized the FBI, and all of our systems were much better after 9-11. Two years later, because of fear... The U.S., like some middle-aged, well-trained man in his 40s, walked down the house, walked down the road a few blocks, pointed at a 13-year-old kid who we were afraid would throw rocks or might do something to us, and said, you know what, when you grow up to be 16 or 17, you might be a problem to deal with, so we're just going to beat the crap out of you, and just we're just going to go ahead and end this right now, because we don't really know what you might do. And so out of fear, out of complete foolishness, out of stupidity, 
we attacked Iraq for very little reason. It was a war of choice. Obviously, Iraq could have allowed in inspectors. They could have done some things to help prevent it. But that was in the post-9-11 days with the speeches of you're either with us, against us, or against us. And we chose to, against the advice of many of our allies, we chose a war of choice. And we also di diverted a lot of American forces and intelligence that was in Afghanistan. We weakened that effort to go into Iraq. Those are the realities. Also, the reality is, and if you want to check this, most of you won't, but if you really want to be a dork about this, you can go read the biography of General Schwarzkopf, who, if you remember, led the effort in Desert Shield, Desert Storm to defeat Saddam Hussein back then. That was in 90 and 91. And if you recall at the time, after an air war and a very short ground invasion, we ended the war in a hurry in Kuwait. And for years, a lot of political opponents criticized George Bush, the first one, for not driving all the way to Baghdad, for not removing Hussein at the time, Saddam Hussein. And even myself, was, I, w I was a little critical of that. So years later, I was reading General Schwarzkopf's biography. And buried in it, something I've not really seen anywhere else, but he cited one of the reasons that the, the war was stopped was not what the media was saying, which was the highway of death where or, uh, Iraqi forces were being hit by air and it was almost like a complete slaughter. And so the media was showing this and the Americans were like, oh my word, this is horrible. We didn't think the war would be like this. this is, we have to stop it. We got, you know, we got weak need. That isn't the main reason. General Schwarzkopf writes in his biography that we knew at the time that Iraq is mainly, guess what, a Shia country. Who else is a Shia country? Iran. General Schwarzkopf and those in charge of our intelligence agencies knew that if we went into Baghdad, if we destabilized Saddam Hussein, who was a Ba'athist, they were a small minority part of Iran, then the Iranians would take over if there was a democracy, the Shia people. And basically, the, those who are Shia would be aligned with Iran. And instead of having a country that had balanced Iran, as you recall, Iraq and Iran had fought for more than eight years, uh, hundreds of thousands of casualties in that war. So instead of having two countries that balanced each other, Iraq and Iran balanced each other, if we toppled Hussein, you would basically have two Irans or a joint country because, again, Iraq is mostly Shia. And then at that point, you would have a stronger Iranian slash Shia force to the north who would threaten Saudi Arabia, which is mostly a Sunni country. Obviously, in the Muslim, in the uh, Islamic religion, for Muslims, there are Sunni and Shia. They're two different forms of Islam, and they are often at war with each other. We knew this in the 90s. We should have known this in 2003, but we nonetheless decided, for out of choice, to invade Iraq. I say all this because since 2003 with that war, there again, we have spent $2 trillion 
with a T, two trillion. In 20 years, we spent two trillion in Afghanistan. We spent two trillion in Iraq. Those are facts. Look it up. Just go to your favorite news source, whoever it is. Those are indisputable facts. You'll find them anywhere. I'm only saying this rather long reminder of history, which I've tried to do as fairly as I can, to say that when you hear people saying we are spending too much in Ukraine, we have spent $66 billion to literally kneecap one of our peer rivals. The Russians have been absolutely cut off below the knees and embarrassed and weakened, and Putin is in, a, is, is in a weak position as he has ever been. This man who has pushed around America, regardless of really who was president, is he is a shadow of his former self. And this has happened because we have helped the Ukrainians with $66 billion, 0.3% of U.S. GDP. I know I've gone for a bit of a rant on this, but this is an important issue. It is important that we do not get distracted by people who are either misremembering history or not wanting to put things in context, or maybe they don't know it. One of the things that drives me most crazy is sometimes the loudest people on either news network are newly elected members of Congress who apparently have absolutely no concept of history that goes back more than just a few years. And so they see $66 billion and they're just screaming about it, and then they'll talk about some hot-button issue like the border or somewhere else. And they'll say, why isn't that money being spent somewhere else? Well, I agree we need to do something about the border, but let's not lose focus on what $66 billion is doing in Ukraine. It is for dollar for dollar the best money that we could possibly be spending right now. So I say all this, I don't have some great reach or power or, or whatnot, but I like to think that the more I can educate those who listen and as the show spreads, when you hear someone, and I've got a Marine friend who said we needed to quit sending you know, checks to Ukraine with no you know, oversight and that it was a Ukrainian Christmas and we're spending and it's it's difficult to persuade some of those folks that sixty six billion sounds like a lot. It's it's a decent amount of money. But let's put it in context, folks. And so that's what I've tried to do. And as we watch Ukraine deal with this growing and increasing severity of the of the winter and their electrical grid we cannot allow those who aren't maybe informed is too strong of a word but i guess i'm, I'm going to use it anyway can't allow those who aren't very well informed to play this we have to watch our pennies we have to why are we spending 66 billion in ukraine because we need to put it in context and I would argue this is the best money, the best, uh, it's so economical what is happening that we cannot allow Americans and our politicians to get weak-kneed 
and to start to waver in our support. This fight is too important. All right, we'll move to something a little lighter. I will say we've talked about how the Ukrainians have rescued Kherson in the southern part of the country. They actually had the first train arrive. They've repaired the rails enough. So this train, I've got a video in the source notes. This train arrives and all the cars are covered in art. You know, the Ukrainians don't have to do anything. And there are hundreds of civilians watching it arrive as they hope to rebuild Kherson, which is the capital city of that province. It's a beautiful video. It's one of hope. If you get a chance to watch it, you can watch it in the source notes because that was definitely something that uh, I think will make your day. In all the darkness that's happening over there, the Ukrainians are trying. And it's a beautiful sight to watch such a valiant fight for freedom that... We've read in our own history, I love reading American history from the revolution and how that we stood up to the world's greatest army and we should have been absolutely destroyed in that fight. And yet for, I think it was eight years after loss, after loss, after loss, and General Washington somehow kept the army together. He somehow kept our spirits up as we basically continued to lose and flee and lose and flee. And we had a few tactical victories here and there, but those were eight very brutal years, and the situation was in doubt. And the easiest thing to have done back then would have been to just surrender, give up to the English, apologize. That would certainly be the easiest thing for the Ukrainians to do. But when there's a fight for freedom, there's a beauty and there's a... I don't know, just a, there's a, just a raw, I don't know how to even explain it, but the, the, the desire for freedom and the desire not to have corrupt rulers grabbing people, putting people on train, um, torturing people, doing all the atrocities that had happened, you know, terrible things that happened to the Americans too. And after you've taken that for long enough, and you've said, that's it, we're done. There's just a, a, just a, I don't know, just a raw beauty of people who've said, that's enough. And no matter what this costs us, we're not going to get kicked anymore. We're not going to just lay down and take it. And so, if you have friends who are convinced we're wasting too much money there, maybe, maybe mention the podcast, tell them where they can start, and, um, Maybe they can listen to that part. And if we can win over just a few, that's that's an important victory for, for, for honestly, for democracy and for those who are standing up against evil forces such as, you know, Vladimir Putin. I try my best not to name call, but I also believe in, in stating facts. And so I don't think uh, calling him evil is anything near outside what is pretty much a, an absolute fact. So... Thanks for uh, giving me a couple minutes to explain some things I've been wanting to say for a while, and I'm glad I, I'm glad I said them. I want to tackle one more t- topic before we close out the news and move to the uh, motivation and wisdom section, and that is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, um, pretty vocally recently gave a warning to China, and it makes me wonder if they're seeing some things that. As I said a couple of weeks ago when the Secretary of State, uh, Anthony Blinken, warned 
that a Chinese possible invasion or attack of Taiwan is more likely than previously and might be moved up. I do wonder if maybe they're seeing some things. And at that time, if you recall, we uh, did some research and the Pentagon said they hadn't seen anything new. So I said, well, hey, Secretary of State might have been a little out front, might have overstated something. But these comments make me wonder if maybe that's not the case. Because normally a Secretary of Defense doesn't quite say things so strongly. But Secretary Milley obviously recently made the news saying things a little strongly about Ukraine should seek a peace deal because not much would happen in the winter. That was a pretty strong comment, and he kind of has a history of that. But he did come out and say these things, and I'd like to think that he probably got his hand slapped on the Ukrainian thing for the comments he made. But he came out and said, I've got this in the source notes from a reporter who shared it, that General Milley warned China over Taiwan, quote, war on paper is a whole lot different than real war. And when blood is spilled and people die and real tanks are being blown up, things are a little bit different. And Milley went on to say any potential invasion of Taiwan would be, quote, a very, very dangerous game. Continuing that quote, quote, they don't have the experience or the background to do it. They haven't trained to it yet. So those are pretty v provocative words for a general. This isn't some corporal or sergeant, you know, who's talking loudly in the square in front of the barracks, who's, you know, a little too loose with the tongue. This is a general with 30 or 40 years of experience. That's Those are pretty strong comments. Um, but it's also a very valid point, because you can war game things to death through simulations. You can do, you know, tabletop sandbox exercises where... You draw out this division goes here or, you know, this terrain or you can all militaries do these things. But the reality is when you do it for real, it doesn't always go the way you think it might go. We've all seen this just in the past year in Ukraine. Everyone thought that Russia would overwhelm Ukraine. They are vastly larger, more experienced, etc., etc., and we saw that wasn't the case. And so I think he's reminding China that though they may have a number of advantages from being closer to Taiwan, from the fact that the U.S. would be overstretched, there are a lot of countries allied against any type of Chinese aggression. And I think General Milley is wanting to remind the Chinese that even though on paper it might look like you have some advantages that does not mean that they are real. It does not mean you could sustain them. And the Chinese have not operated at near the level the U.S. has, not even close, for decades and decades. The U.S. has obviously been in involved in Afghanistan. We've been involved in Iraq. And we've been involved in other places. In the 90s, we had a huge war against Iraq, as I mentioned earlier. The Chinese have not had massive fighting they haven't had a lot of experience. Um, and if you go back in their history a bit, when they invaded Vietnam after we left, the Vietnamese absolutely smashed them with reservists. You can study this history. Go look it up sometime. <laughs> I, I didn't dig up the numbers. Go look up what happened. It was, it was an embarrassment. 
embarrassing defeat for the Chinese. And I mean completely embarrassing. Chinese have tried to improve their military since then. And um, I'm sure they're better than they used to be. But this is like baseball with like the minor leagues. To get good at baseball, it takes decades of reps, of better competition, of faster pitches, of the repetitions you have to do from catching ground balls to whatnot. Like the level of, I've watched, I just know I've watched a ton of baseball lately because my stepson, who's 13, is involved in travel ball. And then I've got another family member that we go watch. And the difference in age between 8-year-olds and 10-year-olds and 8-year-olds and 12-year-olds is just incredible. This pace of the game is different. The pace of the action, the strategies, etc. And then if you start to multiply this up to high school ball, to college ball, to the minors, to professional baseball. There's a reason professional baseball is often so boring because these are literally professionals. And so I think what General Milley's trying to get across is the U.S. military, NATO, our alliances with Australia, with Japan, the Philippines, all those countries, we have been looking at, studying, we've been looking at the situation and studying it. We have literally decades of history. When you read World War II history, and how horrible our Navy and the Marine Corps and the Army was at the beginning. When you read about how catastrophic some of our initial landings were on some of those islands, such as Tarawa, I can barely say the word. When you read about how the Army performed so horribly in Northern Africa at the beginning of World War II, the U.S. has come so far so, so far from where we used to be. And so I don't think the Chinese have fully comprehended the level of skill that the Americans have. We've fought in the Korean War after World War II. We were certainly the most superior military in World War II. We sharpened that in Korea. We've been in Vietnam. There was obviously Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and all these other conflicts. If you look at Chinese history, they just do not have that record. So I think he makes a fair point. It's like the old saying that uh, Mike Tyson said, that he famously said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And so I'm sure the Chinese have a plan. I'm hoping that they don't make any huge mistakes. But I think that General Milley makes a valid point that on paper, it may not look that great, but it doesn't matter how many carriers that China has. It doesn't matter how many more troops they have, or that they have geographic advantages. Because we have experience and we have skill that I don't think they're fully putting into their calculations. So we'll end that right there. I think that's a pretty good wrap-up of that. And I think most of the people listening, hopefully that helped further your thoughts or what your gut was kind of telling you. But I don't think the Chinese would know what is happening if they were to make the wrong move. Okay, guys, so we'll move to the motivation and inspiration part now. I wanted to say just real quick, just a short little intro, which I'll probably repeat every week because sometimes it helps to get things to sink in by hearing them repeated. And I know some people think that motivational quotes are crap, they don't work, and 
I frankly completely disagree. And one of the things I've always wanted to be was an encourager. And so I want to encourage you as much as I can, obviously. But for those who say that motivational quotes don't work, you know, I went to a rough school and going to that school, not everyone graduated, not everyone made it out. And certainly not all of them, everyone made it through college or or to where they probably wanted to get in life. Because it's hard to be around people that don't believe that suck the energy out of you or that are just beaten down by life or poverty or just difficult circumstances, um, whether it's a single parent, etc. But for me, at least, having books that I read, having dreams, having idols that I looked up to, whether it's sports figures or people in history, all of those things helped me. And I know that you guys know this, that if you go to a sales conference or something for like a couple of days, or just some type of leadership event, or just some type of really on-fire type event, and you're around positive people, you are just like, show me the wall, I'll run through it. You're just fired up. But then if you go home, and there's some family members or friends who don't believe in you, and they're like, oh, that won't work, or you can't do that, it just immediately sucks the life out of you. So I know that, you know, people say motivation doesn't last, but I think that motivation is something that absolutely can help you get to where you want to go. And, you know, I believe all of us can reach our dreams. And I definitely want to do my part to help you get there. So that's why I put these in every week. It's my hope that they really help you. You know, people say motivation doesn't last. Well, neither does bathing. And that's why we recommend it daily. And that's what the great Zig Ziglar said. So that's why I try to put these in every week. So I really hope you get something uh, from them. And with that, let's just get started. As I say every week, I'm just going to read these. These are some great folks to follow if you want to go to the source notes and follow, you know, find them and follow them. That's uh, probably serve you well, but you don't have to, of course. All right, so we'll begin with the first one. The differences between a negative leader and a positive leader. It's a chart that was put together by John Gordon. He's a inspirational speaker, and uh, it's a pretty good one. Negative leader is pessimistic. A positive leader is optimistic. A negative leader discourages. A positive leader encourages. A negative leader is demeaning. A positive leader is demanding. A negative leader controls. A positive leader collaborates. A negative leader resists change. A positive leader embraces change. A negative leader leads with fear. A positive leader leads with faith. A negative leader expects to be served. A positive leader serves others. A negative leader attacks people. A positive leader attacks problems. A negative leader ignores people. A positive leader invests in relationships. A negative leader is all about accountability. A positive leader is all about love and accountability. A negative leader complains about problems. A positive leader innovates with solutions. thought that was a pretty good chart, so I'm sure some of those probably hit home for you guys too. I know a lot of you all are team leads, shift leads, maybe managers at your office or leaders. And so uh, you're probably doing a lot of those, but it's sometimes good to hear them and sharpen the sword, so to speak. So, next one. Baby steps are better than no steps at all. Keep going. You'll get there. Again, that's baby steps are better than no steps at all. 
Keep going. You'll get there. Next one. You were born with the ability to change someone's life. Don't ever waste it. Again, that was, you were born with the ability to change someone's life. Don't ever waste it. Next one. Keep grinding. Your day is coming. Keep grinding. Your day is coming. Worrying does not take away tomorrow's troubles. It takes away today's peace. Again, that was worrying does not take away tomorrow's troubles. It takes away today's peace. Next one is a quote. Our sins are more easily remembered than our good deeds. Again, that is, our sins are more easily remembered than our good deeds. And that is some type of Greek name, and I'm not even going to try it. Next one. Tell yourself, I refuse to be anything but successful. Again, tell yourself, I refuse to be anything but successful. Next one. Make up your mind that no matter what comes your way, no matter how difficult, no matter how unfair, you will do more than simply survive. You will thrive in spite of it. Again, make up your mind that no matter what comes your way, no matter how difficult, no matter how unfair, you will do more than simply survive. You will thrive in spite of it. Next one. Think less, do more. Again, that is think less, do more. Next one. Sometimes, as we're stumbling along in the dark, we hit something good. Next one. Being deeply loved by someone gives you strength, while loving someone deeply gives you courage. That was a deep one. It's a uh, Chinese philosopher's name, and I probably should have looked up how to pronounce the uh, name. I believe it's Lao Tzu. T-Z-U. Zoo. Uh, again, it is being deeply loved by someone gives you strength while loving someone deeply gives you courage. We all know how, um, especially stereotypically speaking, uh, how a mother will protect a mother's child. That's probably the strongest love there is out there. All right, next one. Greatness isn't achieved by worrying what everyone thinks of you. Don't look outside. The praise, criticism, expectations, it's all just noise. Look inside to your heart and soul and do your thing. Do it with love and create greatness from the inside out. A good one. Not going to repeat that one. Next one. To change your life, you have to change yourself. To change yourself, you have to change your mindset. Once more, that's to change your life, you have to change yourself. To change yourself, you have to change your mindset. The next one is an image I will try to describe. It shows a person taking a step, and as the foot's going down, the step, it says, your perfect plan under your foot is a Lego, and you're barefoot, by the way, and the Lego says life. So if you're taking a step, you're probably going to step on a couple of Legos. Just keep going. Next one. If you are working on something that you really care about, you don't have to be pushed. The vision pulls you. If you are working on something that you really care about, you don't have to be pushed. The vision pulls you. It's a good one to think about because if you're not being pulled by something, you might not be in the right lane. Just something to think about. Next one. The one who falls and gets up is stronger than the one who never tried. Again, that is the one who falls and gets up is stronger than the one who never tried. I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. 
Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. I always think that's a great one to end with. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. For those who want to know a little bit more about me, here's the short version. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I left home to join the Marine Corps at the age of 17. I was also crazy enough to demand that the Marine Corps put me down for guaranteed infantry. I served four years in the infantry, saw enough danger to decide I no longer had anything else to prove, and I exited military service in 1999. I earned a degree from the University of Tennessee in journalism and spent 10 plus years in the news business. I worked initially as a reporter, but then went on to start a weekly newspaper. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, from 2004 to 2013, but once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 11 books, and while I still have my sights set on the tallest peaks in the writing world, I'm now here as well, a once-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. Well, I've talked enough about me. I really hope you'll consider at least signing up to be a free subscriber. And if you can, consider at some point becoming a paid subscriber. Again, you can do both of these things at my substack, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. Substack.com. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work together to unite this country. And also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. And if you've got a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to who you haven't talked to in a few months, reach out to them. And finally, if you're one of those awesome military folks listening out there, if you need help, please reach out to someone, call a friend or a family member, do it for us all. We've lost too many of the greatest folks that this country has produced to suicide, so I'm asking you to be brave once more and show some vulnerability. Take a deep breath, breathe, call a friend or family member, one of your fellow veterans, someone who can help. There's obviously hotline numbers as well that you can call. With that, I appreciate each and every one of you, every tweet, every share, every email that I get. can't tell you how much those mean to me. Also, if you haven't already put a rating on some of the um, social media places that you listen to us, whether it's Apple Podcasts or some of the others, if you could drop a rating, that'd be great. We're trying to get those up because I've heard if you get them up to 30 or 40, then the algorithms take over. So that'd be a great way to help out. And then finally, let me mention my books because, honestly, the airspace is free. And also, if you're the kind of person who listens to this podcast, they are probably books that would interest you. So I will briefly describe them real quickly. The first series is about a CIA series involving a Marine Scout sniper named Nick Woods. There's four books in that series. I got a fifth one releasing soon. I'm almost done with that, actually. Uh, It's my best-selling series, and not only is it fast-paced and crammed with action, but... Folks say that the uh, main character, Nick Woods, is one of the most real characters they've ever read. He's not some Jason Bourne-like Superman. He's just a hard, tough man who was raised in the old ways. The first book in that series is called Sold Out, and that's obviously because the main character, Nick Woods, gets sold out. I've also got a detective series about a prior Force Recon Marine who becomes a detective. He moves from a big city, which was Memphis, 
to a small town, and he learns there's a lot more going on there than you'd think. It's got some organized crime in it, loads of action. A couple of cops die before the end of book one. And if you love that as much as I think you will, there's also a book two. Book one is called Takedown. Book two is called Gravel Road. And it may have one of the longest, most grueling hand-to-hand fight scenes you've ever read. I get so much feedback from readers who just say that they are on pins and needles at the end of book two on what is happening and what um, the prior Force Recon Marine goes through. His name is Danny Akov, by the way. And then I've also got book one of a private investigator series done. It's about an army ranger who's a girl's only hope after she gets abducted and the cops have stopped looking. Uh, There's plenty of action in it as well. And it doesn't hurt that the aunt of the girl um, is hot and she takes part in the chase. So uh, that book is called Hell in the Mountains. And then I've got a couple of realistic war novels. One's about World War II. It's called Soldier On. And I talk about or I write about the end of World War II an imaginary situation where the last elements of part of the German army is just trying to survive. They know the war is lost, but they're trapped from, on one side, you know, the advancing American troops, and on the other, uh, Nazi SS units. So it, really, the book is, it's it's pretty deep, and so it, the, it digs into the realities of military leadership, and as these warriors are pushed and pulled through just unbelievable physical torment and mental anguish and will they survive with their honor and dignity and I think you know and I've been told this that soldier on just truly defines what it means to be a soldier to never give up and then I've also got a realistic war novel about Afghanistan it's called Hill 406 it's about a couple of marines who couldn't be more different and they get thrown into an unbelievable combat situation, and it's a situation in which they decide to disobey orders and risk everything in order to save some Marines. Had lots of great feedback about how gritty and realistic that one is from veterans who've served there, which is about the highest honor I could possibly get. Um, and then finally, I've got one other book I wanted to mention just real quickly. And then the final book I mentioned is actually it's a part biography, part self-help all-inspiration type book uh, about Barack Obama, but includes absolutely no politics, no left-right issues. It's literally just a non-political look at Obama's rise. And I try to answer questions that many wonder about American presidents. What sets them apart? What qualities allowed them to reach their goals where others failed? How can you cultivate those qualities in yourself? And Besides that, I also share some things about him that you may not know, such as, throw out a couple. Did you know that before he ran for the U.S. Senate, he was crushed by a four-term incumbent who beat him by a two-to-one margin? Most people aren't aware of that. He also coached his uh, Sasha's fourth-grade recreational basketball team called the Vipers while president. That was not super well-known. And then also, the craziest thing, as he's known for being a speaker... Did you know that when he started, he actually wasn't even a good speaker? He admits that himself. So I'll talk about several things I've found out about him as I researched him some. And I think it's a great book that'll help inform you and motivate you. Kind of go into how he found his call and how he mastered speaking. How he overcome just so many obstacles, including that huge like two-to-one election defeat that I mentioned above. And it's the first in what I think will be a number of presidential books, assuming they sell well enough. And so... It's the first one will be on him, and the next one will be on a Republican. I've kind of started that one, but I put it on hold until I try to see what the interest level is on some type of um, 
series of books such as this. Some folks don't like the political angles, but again, if you can get past the cover and the name, it's not a political angle. It's inspiration, it's self-help type stuff. And so, you know, I think you can learn a lot from presidents and I could go for on for probably hours, honestly, about how it's crazy some of the people who end up becoming president and the things they do to get there. But again, I won't get into it too much, but that book is called Number 44, The Traits and Characteristics That Carried Barack Obama to the Top. The How he managed to, with his name, with the background, the mixed background, the lack of money, and the ability to beat out the Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton machine and make it to where he was is still just astonishing. I know he isn't liked by everybody, but it's an incredible book, in my humble opinion. So that's called Number 44. You can check that out as well. So I figure by this point, not a lot of people listen anyway, but for those who are, I will catch you guys next Thursday. Thanks so much, and with that, I am out.